Hi everyone, welcome to Financial Planning Conversations, the podcast about giving good financial advice that is always on target. Today, it's not quite a gunfight at the OK Corral, but we do have a shootout of sorts for you among the risk tolerance tests used by advisors in the United Kingdom and the United States. They're not actually shooting at each other, rather their aim is being tested by independent reviewers who are asking, how do you go about doing what you do and how do you get your results? That probing reveals some interesting issues which you need to know about so you can ensure your risk tolerance testing is good. And it reveals that some risk tolerance tests can look pretty questionable, while others like Finometrica, the sponsor of this program, come out looking fairly good. Finometrica proudly sponsors this podcast as part of its commitment to raising the bar for standards in financial advice. It invented psychometric financial risk tolerance testing more than 25 years ago and is now used by thousands of advisors spread across more than 20 countries. With more than 1 million client risk profiles completed, Finometrica remains the leading global supplier of psychometric risk tolerance tests. So now, let's welcome back our regular guest, co-founder of Finometrica, Paul Resnick. Paul, great to have you back with us. Morning, Craig. As I said earlier, when people line up all of those risk tolerance tests and evaluate them, Finometrica consistently comes out wearing a best-of-breed ribbon. That must make you very proud. We did a lot of work before we hit the market, and of course... The challenge is, why did we do it? Um, there was nothing when we started. The, 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 uh, the challenge was to find a science that was defensible in, the, in, a, in, a, in a vacuum which enabled vast churning of portfolios. And so uh, it took us a long while, four years of research, to get to our 25 questions. We actually tested over 150 before we, we settled on the 25. Now, we're going to talk about a range of the different tests out in the market today, but I guess we have to acknowledge up front, most advisors don't use any of those tests still, even today, after 25 years in the market. A lot of people are using instruments that were designed and built in-house that have perhaps no science behind them. Um, it's certainly true that, that uh, lots of advisors view assessing risk tolerance as a personal professional judgment issue. Um, they see the imposition of risk profiling, risk tolerance testing as a regulatory oversight, which is essentially an excess, and so prefer to either to apply their own judgment as to um, individuals' risk tolerance or to use in-house tools or ones given to them by various asset managers as their, uh, as their tool and to override those if, they, if their judgment is the contrary. So... It's still pretty much wild west for a lot of uh, a lot of um, investors around the world. Let's start in the UK today because in September 2017, a new report on risk profilers came out. It was written by a gentleman called Rory Percival, who used to be a senior executive at the regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, also called the FCA. Now he's a freelance consultant. And he's taken a look at the major risk profilers in the UK market. And along with Finometrica, that picks up Oxford Risk, Morningstar, E-Value, Dynamic Planner and A2 Risk. And he's now offering that report for sale to financial advice businesses. Paul, Rory is in some respects retracing the steps that the regulator took back in 2011 when it reviewed risk profiling. I guess the headline is that over that time he finds that things have improved. I think that's right. His key findings were that quality of, um, of products in the marketplace has improved. Um, he applied the same testing methodology as, um, 
uh, as the original research, which was done in uh, presumably 2009, 2010, for a 2011 um, outing. Um, at that stage, nine of the 11 that were reviewed by the regulator, the FSA, then were found to be um, un of unacceptable quality. Um, when he's done this review, he, he's basically arguing that all six are passable. Going back to that initial FSA report, I never understood how they could make a statement like that and then not tell you what was good from bad. Imagine if health authorities said, we believe that 75% of the steak currently for sale in your town is contaminated, but didn't tell you which steak they believed it was. It is an unfortunate part of British law that uh, people actually apply it. So in this case, uh, the regulator, it was illegal for the regulator to, to identify which of the, uh, of the 11, the two that were um not uh, uh, that passed the, the regulators testing i think uh, users of pinometrical risk tests can take confidence that we were one of the two that were identified as passing the test in 2011 we certainly um, take that view if we look at this on a systemic basis, Rory does point to an issue with, with asset allocations that derive from some people's risk tolerance scoring methodologies. Tell me what the problem is there. The challenge is that we're for similar examples going through each of the tests, a low, average, um, high risk tolerance, for instance, um, the asset allocation recommendations vary considerably, anything up to 25% of higher equities with some rather than another. So at the first level, it looks as if um, there is a broad range of recommendations. When there is a human involved, that is the profilers are being used with, uh, with a competent advisor, the input to the profiling process that comes from risk tolerance can be ameliorated, brought to account as individuals, uh, individual advisors see the personal circumstances of the client and any partner. When there's an application within a robo, however, this becomes infinitely more uh, more challenging. And uh, uh, as we saw in some of the, uh, in the analysis that came out from FINRA. That's the US regulator. That's right. That FINRA is the self-regulator in the US. And it was looking at robos. And it found that with, with one example um, for a 26-year-old, there was a, an equally wide array of growth asset exposures um, th that came out. Now, with the robo, of course, you don't get the professional judgment of somebody saying, uh, um, we shouldn't proceed with this. This, this person is anomalous. Um, some of the answers are so inconsistent, you just get a recommendation. So it, it, it suggests there's a major problem, and the major problem is that there's no standardization. Can there be a standardisation? Well, we could certainly look at standardising some of the approaches to, uh, to the mapping of risk scores to portfolios. We certainly need to talk about how and why they're done. In Rory's report, Finometrica generally comes out as mapping to a lower equity exposure than the other tests might for that same person. I guess the obvious question, are you confident that your mappings are right? And if they are, what does that say about those other people's mappings? Well, I've looked at the, uh, at the other questions um, Rory's report is very helpful. It, it's, it, does, it provides a summary of questions that other, uh, of all six um, questionnaires ask. And it's fairly clear that 
that the Finometrica test is the only one that asks portfolio-specific questions. Um, what it looks like is in the other tests that there is an overarching heuristic applied by the test providers and fund managers to link to an asset allocation. In our case, it's just a correlation of answers. So the only thing I can say is we, re we only report in a Finometrica report that which the client has answered. We don't do any interpretation, and we do that equally with, uh, with the mapping of growth asset exposures. So our more conservative numbers um, are a reflection of that, and uh, I guess you would argue it's a, we would argue it's a greater reflection of uh, the, uh, the necessity to have um, good evidence for why you've made a particular recommendation because obviously the higher the equity exposure that emerges, if it is wrong, if the risk tolerance assessment is wrong, then um, you're likely to have more unhappy clients when market's correct. So you would like to have a very, very solid correlation between risk tolerance score and asset allocation, particularly if you're pushing upwards with your equity exposures. Now, Rory's report reinforces something that we've spoken about many times, that when you line them all up alongside each other, no two risk tolerance tests are alike or in, often even similar. They have are sometimes entirely different methodologies, they have different language, they have different categories of risk for, exa for exactly the same person, their mappings are different, they're only the same in the same way that a watermelon and a grape are the same. If I tried to, to shove a watermelon in your mouth, you'd know the difference instantly. That's part of the challenge, that there is no objective risk tolerance. Uh, when we started this exercise uh, 25 years ago, there was nothing at all. At least now we have uh, an array of competing uh, perspectives. There is nothing that tells you one is right or wrong other than the rigor of its psychometric development and the experience of, of its application over time. Um, of course, the key issue is um, not abstract science, but does it work? Are there satisfied customers? Is there a, a long history of, uh, of no or minimal court action? Is there a confidence from the users, the subscribers, to the fund managers who have mapped portfolios, um, get the, the outcomes and lower, lower levels of um, client churn than they expected. And, uh, of course, that, that's the, the other side of the issue. Abstract um, rigour at one hand, but its application at the other. Rory has a particular fixation on what appears to be his own little Loch Ness monster, which he calls the no-risk client. What is he talking about, and is it even real? Well, the no-risk client is somebody who has uh, um, a preference for taking no risk at all. Um, Rory is very concerned, as was the uh, FSA, now the FCA, that, uh, um, that we identify such people and make sure that uh, they're not given... Um, an automated um, exposure to equities. Um, we would argue that our methodology covers it uh, quite clearly. 
Let's jump over to the US because there the smoke's barely settled on another type of shootout. This time it came from Joel Brookenstein's T3 technology and Bob Veres's inside information. It's a report that's not a critical framework review like Rory's in the UK where they work through a methodology. It's more a reflection of how users who use the tool feel about its accuracy and its ease of use, I guess. Paul, once again, Finometrica comes out shining. Tell me more about it. Joel and Bob are long-time technical journalists in the US and um, uh, have been involved in uh, various views of the industry for probably over 30 years each. Um, so, so this report came out actually earlier this year and it was looking at, uh, amongst other things, the take-up of risk tools in the US and the ease of use. Um, now, for us, um, the, the take-up and the ease of use um, were obviously critical issues. But we, uh, we've been in the US now for well over 10 years, and uh, um, for, for a very long time, we were the only player. There are now, um, it seems, dozens, but probably no more than, no more than, uh, than 10 or 15 um, solutions in the marketplace. In the US, of course... The regulation is far lighter than uh, than the UK, so that there isn't a legal imperative uh, with, with such a strong uh, a strong stick. Um, so we were very pleased. We, we were the second most popular um, risk tool that was taken up um, in the professional community that uh, Joel and uh, and Bob service. Um, but the thing that really tickled us was. Uh, that the ease of use, um, considering uh, our technology and the emphasis we put on uh, on humans rather than the technology being glibly and quickly getting to a solution, we were regarded as the most usable um, technology in the US, and that cheered us up immeasurably. Now, the US proves that point I made earlier about that there's no consistency in the way that people even approach their methodology of assessing risk tolerance. There is a large field in the US, as you said, but it's really a two-horse race, Finometrica and Riskalyze, and you wouldn't find two horses more different. Riskalyze is not at all a psychometric process. Um, Riskalyze uses um, a derivation of uh, Daniel Kahneman's prospect theory. It uses gamble questions and uh, essentially looks for the tipping point of uh, for a an individual um, between an upside and a downside on gambles over a six-month period and then imputes that to being a risk score, which it then compares to a portfolio for advisors. As we've discussed before, Daniel Kahneman is a brilliant thinker and prospect theory is a very useful theory, but it wasn't designed to assess risk tolerance and it's never really been moulded or crafted to do that. That would seem to be the case. I think that the answer would be um, it's a quick way of assessing an individual's preference for upside and downside. Um, I, I guess, um, as I was saying earlier, you need, if you're in business, you, you need to make sure the tools you use are fit for purpose. Um, the European and UK regulation says do a due diligence, pick up its, the strengths and weaknesses of a product, and make sure you mitigate in your process for any weaknesses. And I'm sure Riskalyze or Gamble Theory users will have done that in due course of their, uh, of their preparedness to, to give advice. Um, what, what's ironic um, in, the, uh, 
in the application of Kahneman's prospect theory is that um, it, if you look at some of Kahneman's other work, um, thinking fast and slow, he identifies um, that thinking slow is very painful and something very difficult to do. And you could put the argument that asking people to do a number of gamble questions um, and force them to, uh, to do calculations is actually putting them into system two thinking. And it would seem to me that if, you, if that is a, uh, a correct uh, interpretation, you're more likely to get people guessing answers rather than calculating them. And that would lead to, uh, to an argument that not only is there some question about the um, validity of the link of, uh, of gamble questions to risk tolerance, but the reliability would also be um, subject to some question as well, because you'll get inconsistent uh, answers every time you retest. And as we've discussed before, you looked at this 20, 25 years ago, is this a suitable approach, and you discounted it and went, went in a different direction because there were too many weaknesses there for you? Yes, um, the, the research even then said it was very difficult for people to do calculations. Um, what we've seen in subsequent research is that not only is it difficult, but the people's ability to do it, to do so, degenerates with age. So if you're looking um, at uh, people over 50, they're not going to be as capable as as younger people. Um, it's also true that probability is one of the greatest challenges we have in terms of. Uh, of calculations and that's very poor generally. So when you put uh, the context around um, calculations, we made the decision that as difficult as it may be to read words and answer them, um, calculating was even more difficult. We didn't have a short number of questions because the shorter the test, the more likely you are to have an inaccurate outcome. So clearly, if you have one question test and somebody gets it wrong, it's an extreme difference. Um, as you work your way up through the questions, the number of questions, you, uh, you increase the likelihood of, of accuracy. So as I said earlier, we went down from 150 to 25. Over the last couple of years, we've introduced a 12-question test, which I, I believe our, our new research will, will bring down some numbers, and I can see... Uh, over the next while, um, our new research will be looking for indicative answers that will give um, um, a likely correct answer with a, with a smaller number of questions. So, um, big difference in, the, in our various approaches between uh, human expectations of what they do. And um, somebody asked me the other day what was the likelihood that we would introduce gamble questions into our test, and I said, it seems very unlikely based on the evidence. As you might imagine, we, we, we look at all possible options to improve our test. We've just finished a major um, literature review, which I hope we'll be publishing in the next four weeks or so, that looks at the range of issues around um, gamble tests. Um, our conclusions, which we'll be publishing, will, will show that uh, I think our original judgment was correct. Terrific, Paul. We'll leave it there for today. Thanks for being with us.
Pleasure, Craig. And folks, that's the end of our journey. Thank you for joining us. Now, please search back through our past episodes for more financial planning conversations. Just search that name or for Paul Resnick at the iTunes store or go to riskprofiling.com slash podcast. I'm Craig Saunders. Bye for now. Bye for now.